This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Friday the 6th of August 2021. And amongst all of the conversations that we've been having about vaccination, Norman, one theme that some people have have dis- differing views on is whether or not they should be made mandatory. And yesterday we heard that one Australian company is the first to mandate COVID vaccines for their staff. No, it's not a healthcare provider. It's a canned foods manufacturer. And we got this comment from someone who is a physician saying, if I'm a surgeon and I want to perform surgery but refuse to get vaccinated for, say, hepatitis B, I will usually have to change career. And we're continuing to encounter outbreaks of COVID-19 in aged care facilities, healthcare facilities. Basically, the question that this physician is asking is, why not make COVID-19 vaccination mandatory, at least for healthcare workers, which kind of raises the question as to whether there are any industries where it, it should be made mandatory? Well, the precedent for this is influenza. And the key question here has been, for example, aged care workers, childcare workers, uh, and healthcare workers. And there's pretty solid legal precedent here for this. And the question is, does that apply to COVID-19? And I think there are just some legal principles here. So there are obviously some public health principles. If you're working in a high-risk situation where you're going to be exposed yourself uh, to, the, to a uh, dangerous virus, then the employer has a duty of care to you, but also you've got a duty of care to the people you're looking after. So there have been some court cases, particularly in childcare, which have been won, won by the childcare employers who, uh, in other words, the employers who are insisting on vaccination. So I think the public health case is clear, is that if you're going to go to a high-risk situation, you do not want to be transmitting this to vulnerable people um, or indeed exposing yourself to risk and where the employer has got a duty of care to you. So there's a couple of things going there. And, And there are some legal principles here in terms of this. Well, first of all, is the vaccine available? So in other words, you haven't got an excuse because you can't afford it or you, it's, it's not available to you, you don't have access to it. And is the vaccine safe? Are you exposing people to unmerited risk versus benefit by having the vaccination? Well, it's clear in influenza, the influenza vaccine is usually very available. Most employers who insist on it will make sure that you can get it on site or somewhere nearby. And the, the, the vaccine is safe. So the, the main question with COVID is, is availability. The sort of cloud hanging over Astra in some people's minds is if you're forcing people to have Astra, do you feel entirely comfortable with that with the rare risk of clot, the clotting syndrome? So I think this will sort itself out when the shadow over Astra disappears and we've got Pfizer and Moderna out there and you, can really not, you can't really argue anymore about safety You've got accessibility and availability, and then you can start making things compulsory and mandated. The other worry some employers have here is that you will lose employees who might have strong feelings about being forced to take the vaccine. And I think they've seen that in some aged care facilities where they've lost employees. But so be it if it's for the safety of um, the residents and indeed the safety of other staff. 
The thing that gets me with this pandemic and kind of life in general is whenever your solution has the word just in it, like if we just did this or we just did that, it's usually too simplistic. Like it feels like it could be a really great idea to just make it mandatory for people. But as you say, Norman, there's a couple of different moving parts that really have to be there for that to even be possible. Look, there is a principle in safety and quality of healthcare where you're trying to make healthcare safer for patients and of higher quality. And there are, there are things which are debatable, like if I were to reorganise the structure of the ward, give nurses more responsibility and have certain labels on drugs, I'll, I'll make a certain situation safer. And you could say, well, that's debatable. Let's try it out and see whether it works. There are some things, and there's one eminent person in the safety and quality um, industry, an academic, who says, essentially, there are just do-its. So there are some things which are justifiably, just do it. Wash your hands before you see a patient, just do it. Please. <laughs> um, you know, PPE, um, just do it. So there are things where there's no debate, just do it. And there are things where the, the evidence is not clear. So you just say, just try it out with an experiment that's properly monitored. Which do you think it is with COVID vaccines? In a couple of months, it's probably a just do it. Right now, it's not. Well, there's already one company that's just done it. We'll see um, who follows suit in the coming months. But for now, Norman, there's actually some good news in in some research that's been published recently about kids and one of the concerns that a lot of people have about catching COVID, long COVID. Yes. And so this is just published in um, in one of the Lancet journals. And it looks at, at this uh, huge database they got in the United Kingdom. It's just fantastic where people report their uh, symptoms and issues with COVID-19 and it includes children, and they can correlate that with test results and so on. And what they've done is, for school-aged children, they've looked at how long the symptoms last. And the bottom line here is that it's, un- I think the longest they went were, was a couple of months, but it's really very, very unusual for a child to suffer long-term symptoms with, co- with, a, COVID-19, with a proven COVID-19 infection. The good news here is that children don't get long COVID, anything like as commonly as adults. It's pretty, it's pretty rare. The median illness duration was six days in kids and older kids one or two days longer than uh, younger kids. And a very small percentage, about 4%, had symptoms for about a month. And that tended to be fatigue, headache, loss of, loss of smell. And uh, only about one, 2% of children had symptoms that lasted for at least two months. So this is really quite a rare phenomenon, and that's really good news for parents. What uh, variant were they looking at here? Well, it was between uh, September 1st and January 24th, so that would mean that it's mostly alpha. So, Norman, it's Friday, and we usually do Quick Fire Friday. I feel like the questions I've got for you today are a little more in-depth than we can rattle through with the clock ticking, but let's talk through as many as we can anyway. Christine's asking, how effective are masks? She's read 80%. She's heard someone say 40%. What's the latest? Well, the evidence from reviews of this, including by Raina McIntyre, it's about 60 or 70% reduction in transmission. James is saying, you've often said, Norman, that 80 to 90% of people who catch COVID or who catch the virus don't pass it on. James doesn't have any special data on this, but just feels way too high. Every time there's a case that pops up, like the mystery cases now in Melbourne, invariably they have passed it on to someone else. Well, it's not invariably. Um, so, for example, the family that came down from Queensland in the, in the not this outbreak, but the last outbreak, with Delta, they didn't pass it on to very many people. 
the person who caught it in Sydney, which was the Delta variant a few, you know, some months ago, we still didn't find out where he caught it from. And so that person didn't pass it on. It could be that the Delta, the forms of Delta now are producing way much, way more virus. And I haven't seen any figures recently about the proportion of people who pass on the virus. But it certainly won't be everybody because it's not just a combination. It's not just how much virus you've got on board. It's how social you are, how much you're out there, what sort of environments that you've been in. You've been in. Joe's asking us to explain a statement that we made yesterday as well as at other times saying there's little difference in the efficacy or effectiveness between Pfizer and AstraZeneca. Joe's read that there could be up to 20% difference. Well, I know, Norman, that when I mentioned this yesterday, I was referring to the slides that the Doherty Institute shared at that um, federal press conference a couple of days ago. Yeah, and those the data that Dorothy quoted were from the British study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine recently. We spoke about it on Coronacast. And that shows that for any symptomatic infection, it's true, about 67% effectiveness for AstraZeneca, two doses with the Delta variant of preventing any symptomatic infection. And with the Pfizer vaccine, it's over 80%. So there's that difference there, which can get up towards um, 20% difference. That's true. For severe disease, though, hospitalization, ICU and death, it's there really isn't very much difference between the two vaccines. It's above 80%. Just as, as it becomes more serious, the protection gets higher, which is really good news. So it's starting at the mid-80% and going up to well over 90%. And Daniel's got a piece of feedback from us based on the question that we answered yesterday, which was um, someone asking, why is it called a donut day? Daniel says he's never felt remotely qualified to contribute anything epidemiological to this content, but when it comes to donuts, I'm your man, being from Victoria. Daniel wants to explain to us that donut days aren't merely because there's nothing inside a donut, but because the circle, whether hollow or filled, resembles a circular zero shape. Thanks, Daniel. I'm now fully informed on donuts. We should get Daniel on as a special guest, I think, to explain this further. Well, we we should. And um, and the comforting thing about this is that really what surrounds the nothing in the middle is delicious. So <laughs> That's right. It, it makes sense to have a holistic view of the donut. Very, very sweet indeed. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on Coronacast, but we'll be back on Monday. In the meantime, drop us a line at abc.net.au slash coronacast. So we'll see you Monday. See you then.